As a parent, I'm, I'm a little bit guilty when I say that about uh, saying to the kids, not now, I'm busy. Sometimes you have to say it, and other times it can become a little bit of a, an excuse, but it's amazing to know that our Heavenly Father always has time for us. He can multitask like no other. He has time for every single one of his children on planet Earth at the same time. So uh, we can go to him. No matter, no matter what time of day or night it is, he's there and he listens. That's one of the privileges of being a child of God. And uh, that's what we're going to look at this morning. The songs we've sung have been so fitting. Um, before we begin, I was thinking ahead to uh, the Christmas Advent season upcoming. We've got some exciting things that we're going to do a little bit different. We've got the coloring room and some other Advent-themed uh, items coming up in the next few services. As we get ready for Christmas, who here is uh, finished their Christmas shopping? Is there, who's the Keeners? Okay, we got, we got, a, we got, uh, Peter, I don't know. Uh, we got, <laughs> we got a couple Keeners. We'll see if that, if that holds true. I'll ask Myrna later if that's accurate. <laughs> Who here hasn't started Christmas shopping yet? Okay, there's a few more in that category. <laughs> there's the truth. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's an exciting time of year uh, as we look forward to Christmas, as we think of buying and receiving gifts, and we we know that it's all because of the greatest gift, Jesus Christ, and that we can become a child of God because of him. So let's unite our hearts once more in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this greatest of all truths revealed in your word, that you want us for your children. Sometimes I have a hard time wrapping my head around why you would want us. In all of our sin, in all of our our shortcomings, in all of the ways that we have rejected you, you still want us for your children. And this is an incredible truth. Thank you that Christmas highlights this for us, that you wanted us as your children so badly that you were willing to give your only begotten son to this world so that we could be adopted into yours. And so we pray, Father, that this truth would again register in our hearts today. Speak uh, to each one of us by your Holy Spirit, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our song of the month uh, has been, and we sang it again here this morning, has been entitled, No Longer Slaves. And the refrain that we sang this morning repeats these simple yet profound words. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. In these words, we hear the echoes of the Apostle Paul's words written in Romans chapter 8 and verses 14 to 16. If you want to turn there with me this morning, we'll read these words together. Romans 8, verses 14 to 16. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves again to fear. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This astonishing miracle of our being spiritually born again into Christ Jesus and being adopted by God as one of his children, as co-heirs with Christ, this is perhaps, and not just perhaps, this is the single greatest doctrine of the Christian faith. And yet, being the single greatest doctrine of the faith, it's still simple enough that any child can grasp it. But though there are many doctrines, many more to learn, we dare never forget or outgrow this one simple fact 
I am a child of God. In his classic book entitled Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. This single fact, I am a child of God, I want you to think on it. I'm going to be repeating it a few times this morning as we go, but really think on it. What does that mean for you? What does that do to you when you, when you consider that reality, I, I am a child of God? I want you to think on that this morning. How utterly amazing is it that the Almighty God, the creator of the universe, would even desire to adopt us, sinful, rebellious enemies of him, nothing within us that would be attractive to him, and yet, incredibly, he not only desires us to be his children, but through the gift of his own son as an atoning sacrifice on our behalf, he made it possible. So let me ask you again, what does it mean for you to be able to say, I am a child of God. Are you able to say that this morning with complete confidence? Or is there a little bit of doubt in your mind when you say that? I am a child of God. How confident are you in your position? Because if you have even the smallest speck of doubt, let me encourage you that today you can have it dispelled and you can be completely secure in your current identity and position as a child of God, and in your future inheritance as a co-heir with Christ. Now, the pathway that God has provided for us to become his children happens in three steps. Step number one, we must be spiritually reborn. Spiritually reborn. Jesus famously said to the Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verses 5 to 8, if you want to turn there, we're going to look at this story a little bit. John chapter 3, and there, of course, before the famous verse, John 3.16, they have a discussion about what it means to be reborn. We're going to begin in verse 5, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, this spiritual rebirth that Jesus is talking about, this spiritual being born again of water and of spirit, speaks to the inner soul cleansing that must take place in order for us to become right with a perfect God. This is not something that we can do for ourselves. To try to cleanse our own souls is an exercise in futility. There's a story told of a young boy who once asked his mother if he could help her wash the house windows. And so she welcomed his offer and told him to begin with the one in the kitchen because it was the dirtiest. And so he went outside and he worked diligently until he thought it was clean. 
Then with a dry cloth, he rubbed and rubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed until his arms were tired. But that pane of glass still had so many smudges, he couldn't figure out why they weren't disappearing. Frustrated, he finally called to his mother and he asked her what was wrong. Well, looking at what he had done, she said with a smile, Why, you've been spending all your time washing the glass out here. What's wrong is that the dirt is all on the inside. Has anyone ever done that washing windows before? You couldn't figure out why it wasn't getting clean? You were on the wrong side. Well, in a very similar way, to be physically born is an external act. It's a physical act. But to be spiritually born is an internal act, whereby the Holy Spirit enters and cleanses our eternal soul from within. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And so here you see that the ultra-religious Pharisee Nicodemus, he was obsessed, absolutely fixated upon polishing the outside of his window. The Pharisees were experts at making everything look good on the outside. They had the outside of their windows sparkling clean. But no matter how hard he scrubbed, he couldn't get rid of what was wrong because the sin was on the inside. The sin that separated him from God was deep within his soul, and that was where he needed the cleansing. You see, though God made each one of us, and he loves us as we are, we cannot enter heaven, we cannot enter the kingdom without having that inner sin dealt with. It's like the time that uh, my sons, Declan and Theodore, this past summer they were playing out in the sandbox, And uh, this was shortly after one of the many rains, and they were out in the sandbox, digging away, playing away. I was inside when suddenly I hear Theo sobbing at the door to let him in. Open the door. He couldn't open himself. He's sobbing. He's crying. So I go to the door to let him in. I open the door, and there he stands, absolutely covered, covered in, from head to toe in sand. He's, he's got it in his hair, he's got it in his eyes, he's got it in his mouth. He's just like a walking sandcastle. He's coated in sand. And finally, between the sobs, I managed to piece together, Declan did it! <laughs> of course he did, right? Big brother. So, there he stands, he's coated in this wet, sticky sand, it's in his hair, it's in his eyes, he's coated in it. Though I love my son dearly, And though in that moment I felt some compassion for his miserable condition, do you think I let him in the house like that? Well, then I would have had to be dealing with Leanne, which I didn't want to get into that category either. So if I'd let him in the house, you know what he would have done. He would have gone straight in and sat down on the couch or rolled around on the living room floor. So this was not happening. He was not coming in the house in his condition. So right there I stripped him down, cleaned him up on the outside steps, And then, and only then, was he allowed into the house. It's the same way with us and God spiritually. God loves us, and he feels compassion for us in our miserable condition, being covered in head to toe in sin. But he's not going to allow us to enter his home until we allow him to clean us up on the inside. And religious activity and good deeds alone cannot accomplish this. Only the Holy Spirit is able to penetrate our souls, to cleanse us from within, so that we can be born again, reborn, 
as God's child and welcomed into his home. So this is step number one. We must be spiritually reborn by that inner working of the Holy Spirit. Step number two, we must be adopted. Now we're going to flip over to our other passage for this morning, Romans 8, 15 to 16. I've heard it again. Hopefully it's sinking in by now. Let's read it. Remember, Jesus was talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the agent who comes in to cleanse us. Now Paul is building off of that when he talks about what the Spirit does and how we are to respond. Romans 8, verse 15. The Spirit you received, remember the Spirit came in and cleansed us, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves again to fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, at the time this letter was written to the Romans, the word adoption had a deeper level of meaning than how we use it today. Now, today, when we speak about adoption, we're primarily talking about one thing. We're talking about someone who takes a child that is not their own biological child, and they will adopt them into their family and legally make them their own child. Now, while the Romans did at times adopt children in this manner, especially if a couple was not able to have children of their own, they would adopt much like people will today. They would still do that, but they had another meaning for the word adoption. And this was the ceremony of adoption. And they actually did this ceremony not with children who were not their biological children. They had a ceremony of adoption for their own biological children. You see, as long as a child was under the legal age of inheritance, they were not yet considered to be a full-fledged member of the family because they did not yet have all the rights and privileges of family membership according to the law. So according to Bible scholar William Barclay, he says, Under Roman law, the year at which a boy grew up was not definitely fixed, but it was always between the ages of 14 and 17. At a sacred festival in the family called the, um, pardon me, the Lib, the, I tried to get the pronunciation of this word down, the family called the Liberalia, Liberalia, Liberty Liberalia. The father would take off the toga pretexta, which was a toga with a narrow purple band at the foot of it. Then the father would take the toga viralis, one worn by adults. He would take it off his own shoulders, place it upon his son, and pronounce him now adopted as a full-fledged member of the family, with all the rights, privileges, and inheritance it entailed. So here is the significance of this slightly different ceremony of adoption than we're accustomed to. When we are born again, we are cleansed from within so that we can enter God's holy presence and home. But we don't just stay in the entrance of God's house like second-class citizens. No, we are then adopted in the most formal Roman sense of the word. God the Father, he takes the toga pretexta off our shoulders, the robes of, of childishness, the robes of sinfulness. He removes them from us. And then from his own shoulders, he places upon us the toga viralis. He removes the rags of our sin and replaces them with his own robes of righteousness. God then pronounces us adopted as full-fledged members of the family of God, which comes with all the rights, privileges, and inheritance entailed with it. 
You see, there are no half measures with God. There is no, you're in the doorway, but not all the way into the house. There's no halfway citizenship. There's no halfway love. God did not just send Jesus halfway into the world to die halfway for our sins. No, he went all the way. There are no half measures with God. If we are adopted into his family, we are in all the way. If you've ever wondered about your position as a child of God because of, because of ongoing struggles in your life or anything like that, let me remind you that when you have your own children and they struggle and they, and they go off the path, does that in any way void the fact that they are still your child? The story of the prodigal son illustrates for us God the Father. His heart is not fickle. His prodigal went off down the road. Did he stop loving that child? Was that child denounced from the family? No, he was not. In fact, his attitude was one of eager expectation that his child would return to him. And when he returns, he doesn't even allow him to finish his apology speech before he wraps his arms around him, welcomes him home, and says, we're throwing a party. This son who was lost is now home. There are no half measures with the father. It is all the way or it is no way, but there is never halfway with God. If you are his child, then you are in, adopted as a full-fledged member of his family. And so now the love that God the Father has for Jesus, his only begotten son, get this, mark this down, the same love that God has for Jesus Christ, his only begotten, is the exact same measure of love that he has for you. Isn't that incredible? He hasn't diminished the level of love towards you that he has for his own son, Jesus Christ. That is a lot of love. I don't even know how to begin to measure the vastness of that love, but it is immense. The same love of Jesus Christ is yours today. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John tries to describe this love. He says this, See what great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. There's a story told of a Sunday school teacher who was registering the children, and she asked two of the brothers their ages and birthday. And one of the, one of the two brothers said this, We're both seven years old. And my birthday is April 8th, 2004, and my brother's is April 20th, 2004. Well, the teacher was a little confused because clearly they couldn't be twins, and yet they were so close together, and so she just blurted out, but that's impossible. And the other brother said, no, it's not. One of us is adopted. And before she was even aware, the words came out, well, which one? And the boys looked at each other, and they smiled. And then one of them said, well, we asked Dad that a while ago. But he just said he loved us both the same and he'd forgotten which one of us had been adopted. You know what? God's forgotten which one of us has been adopted. Listen, if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit into Christ, you are a child of the living God, reborn spiritually, adopted legally as a full-fledged member of the family of God. The same love God has for Jesus Christ is yours today. And this leads us to step three. Enjoy your inheritance. Enjoy it. Do you know how big your spiritual inheritance is? Do you know? 
Have you ever tried to measure it? Okay, let's put it into earthly terms for a second here. Who here knows um, what your earthly inheritance is going to be? If you're younger, you're thinking, okay, what, am I, what do my parents own? What's my inheritance going to be? Maybe some of you have a vague idea of what that's going to be. Maybe some of you would think, uh, what's my kid's inheritance going to be? And you're thinking, eh, maybe it won't be that much. Maybe you have some vague idea of what it could be down the road if things go a certain way. So we have some measuring stick, but usually we don't know concretely what the inheritance is actually going to be. But now apply it spiritually. What is your spiritual inheritance? How big is it? Do we even have the smallest idea of what it's going to be like? Remember the parable of the, the, parable of the prodigal son. And the father said to the elder son, when he had been complaining about, well, now you're throwing a party for the prodigal. He came back and I've been here faithfully working away all this time. And you know how the father replied to that elder son? He said to him, have you forgotten All that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. So how much does God have? How much does he own? What is in his bank account? Romans 8.17 says this. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and, get this, co-heirs with Christ. Now most married couples have what is referred to as a joint checking account. In a joint checking account, two people share one account. Now, if you have a joint checking account, let me ask you this. If you're you're one of those who has a joint checking account, say you only maybe put in about 10% of the money that is in that account. Does that mean that you can only access 10% of that money? You have a checkbook with that account? How much money are you entitled to write out of that account with that checkbook? Now, this might not go over so well, but you are legally entitled to write 100% of what is in that account so long as your name is on it, right? That's how this works, and some of you are not giving each other one of these right now, right? But that's how a joint checking account works. If your name is on it, it doesn't matter how much you put in, you're entitled to withdraw all of it at any time. Friends, listen, if you are a child of God, a co-heir with Christ, your name is on the account. Whatever Jesus receives, you will receive. It doesn't matter that he put everything into that account. We didn't even add 10% into that account. We didn't even add 1%. He did it all, my friends. 100% is due Jesus Christ's finished work on our behalf. That is why the inheritance is there. But get this. When the Spirit comes in, we're reborn, we're adopted, our name gets put in the Lamb's book of life. Our name is on the account. We are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that God has given to his Son, the begotten, is now ours in him staggering. How do we even begin to wrap our minds around this? But it begs the question, and this is something I thought about all week. If children of God are so wealthy, then why do so many Christians think and live and act so fearfully as though we're somehow poor? In Romans 8 verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now I want you to take note of something. In this verse, the Apostle Paul is giving a corrective. 
And the blunt meaning of what he's saying here is this. He's saying to the Roman church, I see you. I see you becoming slaves again to fear. So remember that a child of God has been set free and need fear nothing. Paul recognized that Christians slinking around in the shadows, afraid to stand out or speak up or fully commit to the mission of Christ, was to forget who they were. For as children of the king, the creator and judge of all things, who or what is left to fear? And yet today, Christians who have been freed, cleansed, born again, adopted into God's family, full-fledged co-heirs with Christ, are still allowing themselves to become enslaved once more to the fears and trappings and vanities and pleasures of this temporary world. Gary Haugen is the founder and president of International Justice Mission. It's a Christian organization that's dedicated to freeing people from actual slavery, with their prime focus being on freeing women and children from the horrors of forced prostitution, of being used as sex slaves. In Haugen's book entitled Just Courage, he shares the following true account of one of IGM's rescue operations. He writes, A particularly brutal set of slave owners we recently encountered in South Asia held more than 20 slaves in a rice mill. They and their thugs beat the slaves, sexually assaulted the women, even doused one slave's arm in kerosene and set a fire as punishment. After IGM secured the safety of its investigators, we were able to mobilize a police raid on the rice mill and get the slaves before a magistrate to tell their story. But as the terrorized slaves stood before the magistrate, They were too afraid to tell the truth. Their owners had forced the slaves into silence about what was happening to them and threatened to kill them if they tried to escape. One by one, the defeated slaves denied that they were being forced to work or abused. Bit by bit, my IGM colleagues watched utterly helpless as the black cloud of lies descended over the proceedings and began rolling the slaves back into the abyss. That is, until little Sandana found the courage to do what the bullies most feared. She spoke the truth. To her parents' horror, Sandana explained that her daddy couldn't tell the truth, that the owner beat her daddy, and that they were all afraid to say what was really happening. And struck by the raw power of innocent truth, the magistrate said he thought a child would not lie about such things. Emboldened Sandana's father and the other slaves now began to confirm the story, one by one. In fact, they went on to explain that there were other slaves still held at the rice mill who had been hidden away during the raid. Immediately, the magistrate ordered official emancipation proceedings for the slaves standing before him, and he sent a second police detachment that secured the release of the remaining slaves. And because of Sandana's simple testimony, all of those former slaves are now free. The children are in school and their families are now building independent lives under IGM's long-term rehabilitation program. And the slave owners are now facing just what they had feared, the dogged pursuit of IGM's attorneys and the justice of the Indian authorities. Now here we see something that mirrors our lives in the spiritual realm. Just as those slaves were physically freed, and yet too fearful of their old slave master to embrace their freedom. 
so too many Christians who are spiritually set free are equally afraid to fully embrace their freedom, their new position, their full inheritance as God's child. And so they cling desperately to the old familiar trappings of their slavery to sin. They live for temporary pleasures. And they fool around with drugs and sex and pornography and gossip and envy and quarreling and bitterness and pride. As though the joy of the Lord were not enough. And they try to pad the bank account for retirement as though they didn't have a mansion in glory waiting for them. And they try to chart their own path through life as though their father's plan for them was somehow not good enough. And they try to stay as safe as possible as though their father did not promise his angels to guard them. And they worry about daily provisions as if their father didn't already know what they need and hadn't promised that he would provide. And they strive for fleeting earthly achievements as though eternal heavenly glory was just an afterthought. And to all of these things that can enslave us once more, God's word tells us this. Galatians 4, 6, and 7. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are a child, God has also made you an heir. My friends, remember who you are. You are no longer a slave. You are a child of God. Don't go back into slavery. Don't get trapped back into all those old ways of the old master. Don't be deceived, my friends. You are a child of God. Lay hold of your inheritance. Born again, adopted as a full-fledged member of the family. A son or daughter of the king. All that he has is now yours, so believe it. Lay hold of it with both hands, not timidly. God wants you to dive in to what he has for you because what we can experience today is just a foretaste of what we are going to dive into for eternity in the kingdom of the son that he loves. Because remember, if you're a child of God, your name is on the account. And that is what is waiting for us. Do we believe that? Are we ready to embrace that? If so, you're allowed to say amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we say amen to your promises. We say amen to your word. We say amen and amen to this single truth. Because of what you have done, I am a child of God. Help us never forget that this single truth changes everything. And that it is out of this position of being a son or a daughter of yours that our lives are transformed and that we have so much more to live for than the old slave master of this world. No, we have the master of all masters, the king of all kings, the lord of all lords as our daddy. And you're going to welcome us into your presence one day with great joy. And it's going to put into perspective everything we've gone through in this life because the inheritance will be laid out before us. And you're going to say, come and enter into the joy of the Lord. So, Father, whet our appetites for that day. 
And help us remember every day from this day until that that we are your children and nothing and no one and not Satan himself can change that. He is a defeated foe and we are victorious in you. We love you, God. We pray in Jesus' name.